HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. A big shout out to everyone who has signed up. And subscribe to the new Snacky Tunes newsletter out on Substack. Super excited to see support from the community. And if there's any episodes that you'd like us to highlight or hear the story behind, please let us know and we will add them to an upcoming issue. On today's episode, I catch up with Chef Ryan Bartlow, who I met back in the days of Sam Mason's Taylor. And Chef Bartlow's restaurant, Ernesto's, was just recognized on Pete Wells' New York Times 100 Best Restaurant list. We chat about the current dining scene in the city, his formative years cooking in Basque Country in Spain, and the story behind the restaurant's iconic plates. And then from the archives, we share a chat and live performance from garage punk rockers Power Snap, who resided in Brooklyn but hailed from Tel Aviv and were there to celebrate their recently released debut EP. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network.
Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. It looks like an absolute gorgeous spring day in New York City. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, yeah, it is. I got to say, it's a little cool, but uh, but it's very pleasant. So, yeah. um, congratulations, forty two on Pete Wells' top NYC restaurants that came out this week. Yeah. How's it feel to be sitting in that, you know, that top 50? Thank you. Uh, it feels great uh, in the sense that I feel like it's, I, I think Pete has really enjoyed and appreciated what we do here. Um, mm-hmm. He's been, knock on wood, he, I, I know he likes it here and been favorable to us, but I think he understands our, our philosophy. But, but being on that list, more or less, is a great, it's good company to be in. Um, I think he really painted a picture, more or less a landscape of, of you know, what his favorite restaurants are mm-hmm. or should be in New York, you know, from old standbys that are still relevant, like La Bernadette that was mm-hmm. up there mm-hmm. and, you know, newer places to, to the present, to what the future could be. So mm-hmm. uh, it felt good to be paired in that list with, I think a lot of other good company and a lot of places that I enjoy uh, visiting when I have the time to go. So yeah, it was a great, it's always good. He's put, you know, they put us on the best of the last couple of years, which has been lovely. And uh, yeah, I mean, you got to look at like this. I mean, there's 30, 40, I don't know, 50,000 restaurants in New York city. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. to be even acknowledged to be reviewed is great. I mean, I, I have, I have, some good friends that I think do really good work that even haven't been reviewed for whatever reason. So like KP, good or, good or bad, you yeah. know, so to be, to be recognized is, is great. And I think more than anything, it's, it's, it's always a great reminder of, of the work you do. It's good for your staff. It's good for morale. It's good for, you know, business. So it all helps, especially, uh, you know, where we are, you know, and, uh, in the state of, of things of the dining scene right now. So, you know, yeah, I thought it was a good indication of where the New York dining scene is of it mm-hmm. really being back, really there being community. I mean, I was in New York a couple of weeks ago and yeah, not just my experience, but it was like, good luck getting a reservation, you know, right. right. Everything was full. Yeah. Every restaurant was that, and this list seems like the, um, the exclamation point on this, you know, post pandemic return. Right. How, how does it feel as a chef and a business owner? You know, is that the truth? Is that just a little bit of marketing for, you know, the New York restaurant scene? Or do you really feel that like everything is back to as normal as it can? I mean, I think someone would be lying if they said it feels like, uh, you know, November, December, 2019. Sure. Uh, nothing feels like that yet. I mean, that was still, you try to, you, you post up in a restaurant, even when it's full and kind of squeeze your way and you're three or four persons back behind the bar, <laughs> holding your drink and spilling yeah, yeah, it yeah. and talking to your, whoever you're with and hoping that eventually someone, there's moments where you feel that. Uh, yeah. I, I do think there's been a resurgence in, in kind of, uh, people going out at the same time i know that people are being a little bit more wise with their money because as the world's starting to open again people are traveling again 
I know that we felt it last fall where it seemed like the first time in three years people were last summer mm-hmm, were mm-hmm. going away, like abroad, meaning Europe, you know, or yeah, yeah, wherever. Yeah. So people spent their money going to Provence or Puglia or, you know, Catalonia for three weeks. And then we're a little bit, you know, hesitant as to when they were going to go out and how once October came around and then November comes around, it's the holidays. And, you know, it seems like now things are good, but anytime it's, it's a little slower, everyone's either making excuses or trying to track things in a way you never thought about. Like, well, the weather's a little crummy today. I don't know. We might get X amount of walk-ins, but let's prepare to put out the outside tables because it is nice. But also it's 420 today, so maybe people are going to be this. And, yeah, you know, yeah, last yeah. week was Easter and then it was Passover, so we might get business. You know, it's like you're, you're really thinking about things that I think you didn't – you thought about but not to – the level you do now and how you're going to then staff your 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 team for the day and yeah it's everything but but overall you're starting to feel it felt good to be on that list and you're starting to see parts of the city i mean i feel like there's the level of kind of i don't want to say competition but mm-hmm. being recognized for doing good work is starting to come back where it seemed like there was this moment of complete uh empathy for just any place that was open good or bad and you had to you know because look no matter what people do i don't think people understand what it takes to open a business and keep it going for Mm -hmm. longer than six months whether you're in a pandemic or not it's really hard so i give anyone credit for for stepping up and doing it because it's not it's it's very very hard and, and not easy so for anybody but uh yeah i i think there's a lot of truth to where the city's going and hopefully it's on a, on a trajectory in a positive way, but still to my, to me, and I think to many of my colleagues, it doesn't feel yet like it did, you know, three and a half years ago. Sure. Uh, I mean, speaking of, of the business of the restaurants, you got in really young. Yes. The teenager. Yeah. Uh, what drew you in? Did you always dream of opening your own spot or were you just looking for an after-school job? Uh, it's funny you say that. Um, I think I, I was into food and restaurants by the time I was like 12 years old. Uh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. I, I, I knew what good food was. I liked to, you know, I'd, I'd get out of school and literally hang out with a couple of my friends and, you know, this is like the early mid nineties and we'd go sit around and, in, in our friend's basement and put on, this is when the food network was just coming. I had, a, I had another friend who was very into cooking. And so like even that more, helps. yeah. So like even more so than me, like his mom would, I don't know, like we'd be watching the essence of Emerald. We watched, uh, mm-hmm. rolling and chilling with Bobby Flay and oh, Jack McDavid, classic. you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'd say they could say the presentation and the preparation, you know, whatever, like, uh, so there was always that. I grew up, you know, uh, in Chicago, and I, I, my parents knew about good restaurants, and occasionally we would go to them, and, and they would take me out. And my father was an art dealer, and he had his gallery set up in a building that was still connected <laughs> off Michigan Avenue through uh, – you could get there through going to this building, and on the other side – was a really good Thai restaurant and he used to go there every day for lunch. And I remember being nine years old and being exposed to, uh, Ladnar and Larb and Pet Sayu and, 
and this is the nineties. Yeah. Oh yeah. Early nineties. And, you know, being scored calamari in a, you know, in a, in a noodle gravy thing. And, and, and I was just like mesmerized. So I remember I'd asked to cut school to just hang out and uh, <laughs> go to work with my dad, which really all meant was he'd take me to lunch, you know? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was always into food. And then I think naturally by the time I was 14, I started working at Baskin Robbins because I didn't really like school. So my dad kind of yeah. gave me an ultimatum. Like, look, you're either going to work or you're going to do – I didn't do bad in school, but I, I wasn't excelling maybe in the way I should have. So I started working when I was 14. It, at 31 flavors by the time i was 16 i was ma- a manager there and there then, uh, just kind of worked my way up into hospitality and i by the time it came time to more or less graduating uh from school i really didn't fit in with the norm that people you know they were going to go to indiana or michigan or some big 10 mm-hmm. school or something it just really wasn't for me so i the year before I graduated, there was a, uh, a culinary camp that you could attend at Kendall mm. College, which was a culinary school uh, in Evanston, just north of the city off Northwestern campus. And I went for the week and I loved it. And I think at that point I was like, all right, I'm going to, I don't know where I'm going to go at this. I didn't even know if I wanted to be a chef per se. At that point, I was really into writing too, but maybe I'd be a food critic. So I there said, okay, go. I said, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. So senior year i didn't have to like push that hard because i already knew where i was going sure, uh, sure, I, was, sure. I was a teacher's assistant in home economics and then right away in fall of 2000 i started uh culinary school my first externship right about a year or halfway into school was working at a restaurant called mk for uh michael michael cornick mm-hmm. who was a you know pretty legitimate chef at the time oh yeah you know, he worked with jerry kleiner at a place called Marche, which is one of the original West Randolph, West Loop, you know, burgeoning restaurants and that whole scene, which is still there today. If you go to Chicago, which is, you know, places have changed over and over, but it's still it started back then. And, you know, you'd go in the mid 90s at, you know, 10 o'clock at night and see, you know, Scotty Pippen and Charles Barkley there after the Bulls game. It was crazy, you know, and that's uh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And uh so I worked there and I got to really work under the tutelage of, of people that he had running his kitchens. Like the first person that ever interacted with was Eric Williams, who was the sous chef there who now owns yeah. Virtue in yeah. Chicago. And he really helped me kind of get started and take me under his wing. Mindy Siegel was there, who's the pastry mm-hmm. chef at the time, who now has, you know, all, she's had hot chocolate and Mindy's and all this stuff. Yeah. You know, won James Beard Awards. So is Eric. You know, it's funny. So all these people I've worked for have all been more or less beard award winners or michelin star or, you know uh chef so that was my start and then right out of school i i stayed in chicago and i worked for a chef named carrie nahabidian who had naha mm-hmm. uh she was kind of a legend already she had worked for jean bonchet le francais which was a very famous restaurant in the 70s and 80s just outside of chicago at one point considered the finest French restaurant or restaurant in the country. It was very, it was positioned very close to O'Hare airport. So you'd see people fly in just to dine there and then they leave in their <sighs> jet or whatever. But <laughs> must uh, be nice. Nice yeah. work if you can get it. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, uh, she went on to be Norm Van Aken's sous chef uh, at a restaurant called uh, Sinclair's, which was again just north of the city. 
And one of her first cooks there was uh, Charlie Trotter, you know, and he worked there. If you've ever, if you saw, what's the movie Love Charlie that came out yep. recently about yep. Charlie, Carrie's in it a lot, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah. She's interviewed in it a lot. She's a big part of it. So I worked there. And then, yeah, while I was there, I think everybody's drive at the time, if you could do it, was to try to uh, at least do some time abroad. And, I, while I started working for Carrie, I had also just graduated from school. And if you mm. graduated, it, you know, with, I think, I don't forget, decent honors or high honors, top of the class. <laughs> enough, enough honors. Yeah, they would take you to uh, the Bacuse d'Or, the, the biannual comp- culinary competition in Lyon. Wow. So I was 20 years old and it was my first time going to Europe. And uh, I was, I was memorized, mesmerized. And I thought for sure I was going to work probably in France, because that was kind of the thing to do if you could do it. And I'd have to figure out how I was going to, you know, again, this is 2002, 2003. There's no, there's no DMing. There's no emails. There's no Facebook. Mm-hmm. You email. I mean, you can email, but it's like, it's not like now. It's not like today. No. Just, no. There, it was very, very difficult to even communicate, uh, let alone make a reservation. Still is hard to make a reservation. I mean, there's still places in Europe where you still have to call. You know, I mean, yeah, polyvalent poly glass. You yeah. know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So while I was there, you know, I went. There was a trade show going on, and there was all these cookbooks in one room and one book that really just caught me, and, and I was really captivated. Was El Bulli, you know, mm-hmm. and then I started reading about this place and about what was going on in Spain at the time. So. I thought, okay, I'll uh, I'll see what they're about. Unfortunately, it seemed like their their program, if you could get there somehow, was only six months. And I said, okay, well, if I'm going to go anywhere. I want to do at least a year. So yeah, it was my father that suggested. He's like, why don't you uh, you should look at see what's going on in the Basque Country because there's a lot of cool stuff going on there too. And there was this whole conversation about Spain going on in yeah. general. Yep. Yep. So, which people forget now that Spain for a while, because so much has shifted to the Nordic part of the world. Yes, that that Eboli in Spain for years. If you're just looking at like the James Beard or global sure. list, yeah, they were leading the conversation. They were leading the conversation. They were leading the conversation. <laughs> you know, the funny thing was, the conversation was led, but it was about this very specific kind of, you know, molecular, I think molecular <laughs> yeah, modernist yeah, cooking, yeah, yeah. which for me. Which I'll get to, but you know, you're while you're you're there. Um, but anyways, but I I said okay. Let you know you're starting hearing about all this Michelin stuff, and you're reading about San Sebastian, how it's still I think to this day has the most Michelin stars per capita of any population uh-huh. populated city in the world. So I said okay, you know. And my father said, look, if you really want to go, because we were trying, he's like, I'll let's let's work this out, you know, because. I got a pretty good deal for school and he helped me out, but I know he really wanted, if he, if he knew I really want to do this, he'd help me. So I said, okay. So we, we flew to Madrid, rented a car, drove up to San Sebastian, went to a few places and one was, you know, we went to Arzac, Mugaritz, Akalar, sure, and all the big sure, ones, Versace, sure. but I don't know what it was about Akalar. I don't know it was the fact that they got back to me. <laughs> or it was just that's a big part of it back yeah, then yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But we, yeah. Were, we were you know it was it's it's placed up outside the city on this gorgeous mm. cliff that overlooks the entire bay of biscay uh, and we sat and had lunch and i was like wow this is this is incredible and 
you know, Pedro, the chef, came out, and you know, I just said, you know, in my more or less broken Spanish Castellano, like, I'd I'd love to work here. You know, I just came all the way here from Chicago, and he said, okay, yeah, return in two weeks, and that was pretty much it. And I just kind of stopped my entire current life and changed everything and went back and, you know, and that became my life. So that was a big uh, step again in, at a very young age before I was even 23 working for, you know, a good, a good restaurant. So, yeah. well, um, listen, I want to take a quick musical break because I want to talk about your time there sure. and its continued influence and how it inspired Ernesto's. We have a quick song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Snacky Tunes, we were chatting with Chef Ryan Bartlow, who is the chef and co-owner of Ernesto's Restaurant in New York. And so you're in San Sebastian, Spain, and we alluded to it a little bit before the break, but right. yeah. when people think of Spain at that time, they think in foams, like astronomy and, right. and spherical things. Right. But that is a very specific part of cooking, which, and in many ways today... Uh, has really faded from 
what people will consider fine dining. I think yeah. maybe you see a little bit of the stuff that's hidden as technique, maybe xanthan gum or something like sure. that. Uh, sure. But but that's not the food you serve at Ernesto's. And, no. I, and I think what you were getting at before the break was that like there is this whole Basque culture of food and music and yes. entertaining yes. that really drew you in, which you can now really experience with your food today. But take me back to then. Yeah. What um, inspired you? What did you love? Well, I think, what, I think first what of all, connected with you. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the initial just, uh, engagement. I mean, not only the great part was, you know, when you go to these places at the time, they, what I liked about it was you had to be there for at least a year to do the whole program. And it, and it was almost mm-hmm. treated like school. You were not, uh, you were not stuck in the dish pit. You were working about six different stations throughout the mm. entire year in a beautiful uh, dual island, Moltini, you know, very Michelin uh, kitchen. They provide you with food every day at the restaurant. And then I was very fortunate where I got to live. Some of the cooks live at this kind of uh, apartment complex that they pay for down the hill. I got to live on the second floor of a... 200-year-old family-owned Basque country wow. restaurant that very nice. was very good, like really, really <laughs> incredible, you know? It was, you know, so it was really, really uh, interesting and very influential to to be placed there. So I think at the time, um, yeah, you're going to this restaurant every day and you're seeing all these, you know, you're literally, you're thrown right in. I mean, it's like... Uh, nobody spoke English. There was one or two other American guys there with me at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one happened to be my friend. He's a chef, and uh, he's got a restaurant in Palo Alto now. His name is Tony Secbiar. He worked for mm-hmm. French Laundry for a long time. Yeah, he was my sweet. He had his. He had another bedroom there. He was there for a little while. Uh, I worked with him uh, called Proteges. Yeah, in Palo Alto. But either way, you're thrown right in, and it felt like an amazing. Old, Michelin style kitchen. There were people from all over parts of Spain, Italy, Japan, France, but everyone speaking Castellano, which is the dominant uh, language in, in, in Spain. So that's what we were speaking. And right away, I, my first day, I'll never forget, you're on an amuse station. And yes, the, the techniques that you're using, there was some kind of seafood and borage uh lecithin foam or something but sure. it was the first time i'd seen in front of me you know incredible cockles that were flown in mm. from Galicia, as well as razor clams i'd never seen you know growing up in chicago we never had good seafood anyway so you know seafood was like a big deal when my mom would go to it was like a place called burhop seafood we'd buy salmon that she'd bake yeah, yeah, soy yeah. like once a week you know uh, so yeah it was okay. So, you know, this was like really incredible. And then you, you were exposed to these, to the product, things I'd never seen before. I mean, mm. monkfish, sole, uh, turbo, uh, beautiful red, you know, carabinero shrimp, uh, little white shrimp from Huelva, which is in Andalusia. So um, I think it was, a, it was a mind-bending experience. But at the same time, when you're when you're in it and you're just being told what to do, sometimes you're you're not realizing the reasons as to why you're doing these flavor profiles together. Mm. I mean, it was amazing to see all these ingredients being used because it was brand new and techniques. But uh, it 
I didn't necessarily understand why you're doing them the way you're doing them, which again leads to years later, the kind of unearthing effect of understanding what this all meant as far as the culture, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That said, there were still, there were two kind of more or less progressive tasting menus, but they still did offer at the time a very traditional like Basque a la carte menu, uh, which had kind of the staples that you get all around town where there was a, uh, Hake and merluza and salsa verde, which is hake that's cooked in, uh, you know, fish fume with garlic and parsley and white wine, yeah. perceves and uh, squid and ink sauce and suckling lamb. So, hot fritters. Yeah, we had uh, only on Sundays we do croquettes. Okay. Yeah, again. So it was cool because yeah, there were yeah, some yeah. days where they'd still like keep keep very traditional things. So. I, Sunday, I think like a lot of places in Europe, lunch was the big thing. That's the main meal of the day. You know, around two o'clock, yeah. lunch, we were closed. We were always closed Sunday nights and Mondays. So peak season when you're in, you know, when you're in Basque country, because that's a very big tourist area because beaches, surfing is huge there. Uh, whereas the rest of Europe is usually closed around August. Everybody's in San Sebastian. So mm. it was it was incredible. I mean, just being a kid, being there at that time was was awesome so yeah but like sundays were a big deal you'd we'd cook for lunch and then we'd have sunday nights off nice and mondays and then in the winter time you'd get sunday night monday and tuesdays you actually got two days off two and a half days which was great because that would then give you the ability if you wanted to if you had a buddy that had a little Renault car you could drive <laughs> three hours to a totally different province yeah 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 in spain or we'd get in a train and go to barcelona for a night or two you could drive France is only 30 minutes away, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it was, it was this perfect kind of Bermuda triangle of really learning how to, uh, you know, I took every minute of freedom as an opportunity to learn, to see, to do. And I knew that I wouldn't have many moments like that in life that were just no responsibility other than sure. showing up to a job uh, and, and doing a good job and, and then being done. So that was, you know, that was basically it. So yeah, you're, you're, you're going through the motions and you're working in this incredible place. You know, we got to, we go into town sometimes there were certain events where we would, you'd shoulder up with people you meet from you know, some of the other big restaurants like Arzac and Mugaritz and yada, yada, yada. But I think, over time, what was even overlooked that I noticed more as I went back was all these just incredible, good, local, seasonal restaurants that were not too far off from the place that I uh, lived on top of, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. if, you know, if you look at what's championed now, a place like Asador Echibari, mm-hmm. which is known, that's really just a very, very, very refined version of the place that I, you know, lived on top of. I mean... The same ingredients, the steak, the fish, the little bit of salad with onions next to the steak, piquillo peppers, seasonal mushrooms, seasonal seafood, grilled properly on the grill, wine, bread. That's about it, you know? Um, but so, I think what you're speaking about is just such a shift in dining culture. Now, I, we finally yeah. put it together. You finally reminded me where we met years ago, which right. was when you were working with Sam Mason at Taylor. Yeah. And that obviously that, you know, that trend of cooking came to the States and you put your teeth on it. Right. But in opening a restaurant now, what you've done with Ernesto is I think you're getting to the point of where so many of us who've been around for so long 
have sort of swung back to, which is like yes. a very specific regional point of view uh-huh. and approachable, but like great ingredients, great techniques. Yes. And yeah. it's something that can also stand out because look, you know, to maybe even your father's point being like, here's a restaurant you should look at. Here's a different point of view that you look at. Yeah. Because if you go to Lyon, Paris, London, Barcelona, you and every other guy who's or girl who's over in Europe is getting the same point of view. But like, look at the Basque region. Yeah. So how much of that was really in your back of your mind? Because you did go, come back to the States and you were yeah. a journeyman. And you worked right. with a lot of, you worked with Linea and you were at Frenchette. Yeah. yeah. But how much was that always in the back of the mind working your way up to Ernesto's? So you're like, I have this touchstone uh, yes. in my life and this is what I want to open up. Exactly. My I, it was always in my mind. And I knew... And I knew I could do it, number one, because I, I understood it. Mm. But I also had my own story to tell about it because I was kind of yeah. this outsider looking in that eventually becomes mm. part of it and eventually embraces it to the point where you're also a colleague within it, you know? Um, right. But, but that takes a lot of courage, especially when – you aren't from Spain. You had to learn another language. Sure. Uh, you're, you're doing something that might be out of your quote unquote wheelhouse. But, but it was always, you know, I'll never forget again. I mean, I had a lot of, I give a lot, both my parents who are still alive, still together this day. I'm actually going to see them this weekend. They, they were big, big supporters. I remember when I first moved there to Spain and I was like, eh, I don't know if I like this, you know, like, you know, at the time, just even talk to anyone. You had to go into town and buy a little phone card and go to a pay phone booth and stand there. And I'd call long distance to my dad. It'd be raining. And I'd be like, ah, oh, man, this sucks. I don't know if I like it. Like, I don't know if I want to be here. And he'd be like, just, just, you know, stick it out. Hold, stick it out because there will be a moment in time where you realize you'll never have this experience ever again. Oh yeah. That, that made a lasting impact on me. And it wasn't that much longer, maybe three months when summer broke Mm. Um, the beach was alive. We, you know, you get yes, you get three hours off in the middle of the day to go do whatever you want. I I got really healthy. I'd go went to a, a, a gym and I'd swim every day, and then wow. walk around and you have a coffee, go back. You know, I felt really great. I had great friends. I got to travel to all these different places. There were so many festivals going on, and yeah, I'll, I mean, Spain in the summer. Oh if, my god! If yeah. you're lucky enough to ever been, yeah. it's magic. It's magic. I mean, we got to go. Yeah, we go to San Fermin. We went to Pamplona. We would go to you know so many different. Yeah, depending on the week, there'd be bullfights. There'd be uh, yeah, just constant. And again, San Sebastian itself is a very interesting town, very cultural town. They have an incredible jazz festival every summer. I saw Roy Ayers play on the beach there. You know, I saw the film festival there every year. In October, they have an incredible horror film festival. So all this, all this mm. cool stuff going on. So um, it was And it so was how great. much of that culture and that perspective of life did you put in, into Ernesto's? Because you can easily just put the food in and be like, hey, we're doing this from the Basque region. Yeah. But how much was your goal in opening it to say we're going to try and capture this region and, and bring it to New York? It was a hundred percent my goal. I, I really wanted to uh, I wanted to relive those moments that I that I missed. I mean, that was the whole point. So it went well beyond uh, I think uh, 
just the food. It was more about creating an atmosphere that in some way would give me a reminder of that time uh, for the rest of my life. You know, I wanted something to make me feel like how I felt when I was 22, because you're never going to feel that way no matter where you are in your life. You know, that, that moment of kind of innocence, but you're also absorbing everything like a sponge. So for me, again, I think I took more in than a lot of my friends that lived there. You know, I had friends that would go back to their parents' house in Rioja on the weekends or would go to Zaragoza or wherever they lived. Because it was only about two hours in your car. So, yeah, you'd stay still with your, you'd still have your bedroom in your parents' house. Sure. On those weekends, I, I was traveling. I, if Whatever I could do, whoever would take me in their car, you know, if I could go to a friend's house and their mother would cook us a meal, that was that was incredible. So, you know, on a holiday, my, my best buddy, he was from Andalusia, from Cordoba. So when we get like a week off or five days, I, he'd take me back to his parents' house in the southern part of Spain. And it was a whole totally different cultural experience than I had uh, in San Sebastian. But so I think it went beyond just the food. It was, it was those constant memories, reminders of, of, of doing something that I don't think a lot of people have done since or will do again. And, and like going back to everything, I knew I had somewhat of an angle in the sense that I still, to this day, there aren't a lot of people that are doing kind of individual, you know, Basque and or Spanish restaurants in New York, let alone in, in this country, you know, other than, mm-hmm. you know, again, I think what Alex and Rage and Eddard do is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have people like, uh, like Jose Andres, but that's a whole other thing, you know? That's so, a whole other operation. That's, that's, yeah, that's a know, whole other thing. That's the whole thing. So, so there, and again, but for me, I'm actually, you know, Edder's Basque. I'm not. So it's like it's. Yeah, it's even, yeah, yeah. I'm telling my story, which is different than theirs. You know, um, it, it, it's a reflection, I think, of my experiences and my time there. Again, as this kid from Chicago, that ne- it never left me. It never ever left me. Even going on through all the things I did, that moment never left me. And it also helped me in a lot of ways climb the ladder as far as getting to where I needed to. I mean, as far as number one, learning and learning how to speak Spanish fluently to this day, which I do, which again has helped me, I think in advance and, uh-huh. and prosper uh, 100%. in this field. And also, you know, it helped me when I came back to Chicago, getting a job at Alinea, you know, that first roster grant was very selective of who he wanted as he should have been. And if you look at that roster, I mean, everybody roster is it's a murderer's row to this day. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I signed on, I was Alex Dupac's pastry assistant. So him, me, Jordan Kahn, uh, John Shields, Curtis Grant, uh, Josh Havinger in Nashville. I mean, uh, Greg Backstrom, you know, a stupid, like I said, it goes on and on. So, so, but again, I think by going to Europe and doing that thing helped me, get that job you know because at the time the majority of people that that went over to Alinea were either from trio where grant was prior or there then there was a couple people like john shields that were from charlie trotters yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was it so. yeah so looking back and you know now seeing the the restaurant on the hundred new york list yeah it seems like you've been able to like realize a dream that few chefs have been able to do uh-huh. um, at a relatively young age. You yeah. know, some chefs never get this opportunity and you get to have this recognition. Yeah. And so I say nothing but congratulations to that. You. Because it's it's, it's you. amazing to see and especially knowing where you've been and what you've been through. Um, yeah. 
the one last thing I wanted to touch on, which I've absolutely have loved seeing um, from far, is the plates. Because I feel yes. like the plates have the symbolic representation of what sure. you've been talking about. Because yeah. it's so bold to have yeah. your name on the yeah. plate. Yeah. But it's also a bit of a nostalgic heritage type of plate as well. Exactly. What do those plates mean to you? How did the design come about? How do you feel like they reflect like the success you've had? Well, again, I think that, like you said, the plates themselves, the emblem on the plate is kind of a, uh, a reflection an homage, you could say to, to those kind of typical Spanish and or Basque taverns that uh, really inspired the, the, the feeling of what this place is. But at the same time, even Akalara at the time had a little, had a little yeah, plate. You yeah. know, you remember like yeah. there was, even Danielle, you'd see little. So oh, yeah. I, I never, I never want to steer totally away. Like people are like, well, you don't do anything like what you train. I go, yes, but behind the scenes, the methods, the recipes, the way I sure. operate my, not to say I'm some Michelin kitchen tyrant, but there's practices. I mean, the, I think when I worked at Alinea, the one thing I gained more than anything was just how, House sanitary and smooth and 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 just perfect Clean. everything was run. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was no wasted minutes. So, but the plates themselves really reflect. Uh, I, I want you to know that you're escaping to somewhere else, but there's still a level of uh, of comfort and and uh, and there's a story behind it. Because again, like a lot of places that might. Yeah, a lot of places I went to, they, they'd write their name to kind of show who they are yeah. and represent their their town, their village, you know? Uh, you know, I, I, but at the same time, yeah, I make the food that I would like to eat. And when I go to the restaurants now, when I, I was just in Madrid two weeks ago, mm -hmm. and I traveled, and most of the places I went to were places that on the level that I feel are comparable to what we're doing here. I still have an appreciation for extreme fine dining. I also think that what we do to some people here is still considered, quote unquote, whatever you want to call fine dining. But I, me personally, I'm not as enchanted with a 16 course uh, Michelin meal anymore. Who is anymore? I think I want to eat really good product done well, but I don't yeah. personally don't. And I, again, I have total respect for anyone that wants to do it, but sure, same. I'm, I'm more about less is more these days and just paying for something really, you know, a very high quality prepared the right way. Um, and I think that's fair to say that, but, and I think we do that here. I think the great thing about what Ernesto's is, is we strip everything down to the bare core of what food, what service is supposed to be about. But still, you know, it is nice. We are that place where you can come in with a friend and sit at the bar and have a few pinchos and some croquettes. Or you could make this a very special evening outing and your parents can come to town mm -hmm. and you can get dressed up and you can buy, you know, two bottles of kava to start your meal and then and have a grand experience. Buy a whole turbo and a big yeah. steak <laughs> and, and really ball out, you know. And I, and I think that's what a great restaurant should be and you should feel comfortable doing both of those things without losing the essence and class of what I think New York meets Spain can be. And I think we've, we've figured that out here, at least try to think we have. So, yeah. 
Well, yeah. listen, congratulations. If people want to visit the restaurant or check out what you're doing, look at dishes, where can they go? How can they? Uh, easy. They can obviously go to uh, ernestosnyc.com. They can go to our Instagram, which is ernestosnyc, or my Instagram, which is just debartolo. Uh, and, yeah, it's very easy to, to find us. You know, Amazing. Well, it's so good to reconnect and to chat with you. Appreciate the time. And um, congrats. You. I'm looking forward to coming in next time I'm in the city. Yeah, man. You got to come. Uh, shout out to Ava and Vanessa at, over at Mona as well for being just awesome. Setting us and up. Putting us together yeah. Setting us up. We have another song from the archives and a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm here with Power Snap Live in studio. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Hi, Paul. You're going to have to shout since you're all the way back all there. Right. Hi. <laughs> Paul on drums. Romy on guitar. And vocals. Or both vocals. Yeah, she's like the lead vocals. Okay. And I'm doing some background things. I'm Noga. Noga. Um, so you're from Tel Aviv? Or two of you are from Tel Aviv? Oui. I'm uh, from actually Ramat Gan. It's like a city next to Tel Aviv. Fair enough. How far out? Like 10 minutes drive. Give it respect. <laughs> Give it respect. Walking? Uh, walking, it's like, depends 40. to which part. But you, it's walk, like, you walked it Yeah, a few it could times. be like a 40 minute, an hour maybe. Okay. Um, growing up, what was the rock scene like in Tel Aviv? And what were your influences? S- small. Rock scene is small. <laughs> um, Noga barely knows any Israeli music. <laughs> because my parents. Thought, no, I do know, like, but just from the like, 60s. <laughs> it, yeah, Israeli old. music in what sense? Like, Traditional Israeli music, like contemporary pop Israeli music, or oh, that's like neither of us. Oh, okay. I mean, maybe a little bit. There's, uh, there's not a lot to talk about with uh, contemporary Israeli music. I think. <laughs> um, and so, uh, growing up, uh, how did you get into this? Or what were your influences, or, or where from around the world influenced the the music that you play and got into? Well, me, Romy, my dad is a musician. What does he play? He plays guitar and sings. Okay. What type of music? Rock. Okay. <laughs> I can, primary so, source. Yeah. <laughs> and Noga's dad is a musician too. Yeah. He plays bass and guitar and he plays like rock and blues and stuff And like were that. they in, did they do their original music, cover bands? What type of, where did they play around town? My, my dad had and still has a long career of like his songs and music. What is it? Does he perform in his name, or what is it? A band, or no? His name is Shalom Chanoch. And what is his? And he plays around Israel, or what is his reception and audience? He, he plays a lot in Israel. He comes. He he tours um, the U.S. every like couple of years. He's like a very big name, so he's like one of the reasons it was hard for me to like stay in that small little country because there was because there was like there was no way it wasn't gonna be like a daughter of exactly (laughs) so uh how how did how did he influence you and then how were you able to kind of define your own voice away from dad in the in the early days well i i just grew up around music and then i went to um like an art high school to the jazz department where i met nogi 
friends from high school. <laughs> and I, since I was 12 and got to know Green Day, I wanted to start a band and move to the U.S. So when I met Nogi, she was a pianist. And, um, and one day I got her to play bass. And then I was like, hey, we should do a band together. <laughs> Did you make a playlist since the rock scene was small? I, I mean, normally in the in the states, you'd be like, "We want to be like," and then you list, you know, the wide, diverse range of influences that you could have from anywhere in the states. Where were you pulling from? And when you, you know, when you say rock music, who, you know, who did you give as? You know, you used to have flyers like in the city. If you play this and these are your influences, we're looking for a bass player. Did you make a playlist? Did you did you like pass her some vinyl, some mixtapes, some to pop? her? Yeah. Um. No, because she loves the Beatles, and that's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what were your early uh, shows like before you came? How long were you in a band, and was it always Power Snap, and then you came here, or did were you a different band, and then when you moved here, you reformed as Power Snap? So it started just from the both of us. We were playing, like, bass and guitar. Like, and at cafes. Yeah. In Tel Aviv. Yeah. In Tel Aviv. When we started when we were, like, 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. And then... 16. 16, right. And then what happened? I don't remember. We met like a couple, your cousin and, and then, his friend. No, and then I, I was like, okay, I'm moving to New York, but I want to record some of my original songs. So when I move to New York and try to find a band, um, people know what, like what my style is. So mm-hmm. I, and that was when you were like 17, or 16. Seven. Never mind. When Something you like were that. like younger and than today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, earlier than today. Yeah, earlier yeah. than today. And then I took Noga and I took. My nephew, who's almost my age, and a couple of his friends, and we recorded like three songs. And then I got here, and I was like, "Wait, I have a band in Israel, so I'm gonna go back." <laughs> <laughs> so did you go back and drag Nega by the hair, or get on your knees and beg her to come, or how did you end up? No, I was like, "Yeah, I'm totally down to like try to move to a different country." It took a few years though, because I came back when I was like 17. Yeah, I, I wasn't moved. ready to move. Yeah, you were ready. I wanted to do, like, other stuff. And then she met her bit. boyfriend, who's also a musician, and then his bandmates from Israel moved to New York. Easy and then decision. he wanted So he wanted to, too. No, it started from me. Started I was like, me. yeah. Like, but, um, I mean, it started from me. It started from you, <laughs> and then it was me, and then I talked to him about it, and then it's. I think it's boring. <laughs> I think it's good, though, just because, um, you know, you just came with a couple of guitars, bass, and a dream. And, and what was it about hearing Green Day and being at the age of 12? Like, I wa- like, why did you want to come and make and release music in the States? What, <sighs> what, what was the appeal? I don't even know. I just remember seeing American Idiot, and I was like, what is this? I want it and also to be it. And just something spoke to you about it. There was no, no something Some, indefinable. Something, it felt like very rebellious and very like, like, very emotional, even though it's like so angsty, you know? Like very... Yeah, it's and it's angsty, and I was like a angsty teen. Angsty teen, exactly. And given the you know, the two different cities that you've existed in, Tel Aviv and and New York, what what would you say are, are some of the the differences in people's reception to having the dream of being a musician, or the opportunities, or the availability, or New York versus Tel Aviv, and being like, I'm a musician, I want to be a, a rock and roller. How how is it received? Well, personally, I. Um, I do feel some kind of like wearing out here, like, like 
be like getting worn out because there's so much music and so many people even though in Israel like in Tel Aviv also every single person I know is an artist mm. but here yeah like all the music it's kind of like too much sometimes but but also I found here a community that really like When I fall, they lift me up. And I have Nogi and I have Paul. And we're together, you know. We help each other out. And that's something that was harder in Tel Aviv for some reason. Can we hear a song? Yeah. What are you going to play for us first? Uh, so this is actually a song that started... Um, our, we had, so we did have a band in Israel and we used to call it Bar Vase. Like a bar... in a vase, but it's actually a mutation of the word uh, barvaz, which means duck in Hebrew, and I really like ducks. As you just waved your duck tattoo at me. Yes, this is the radio, so it's good that you explained that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here we go, Power Snap Live on Snacky Tunes. Yes. One, two, three.
You mentioned finding community. You mentioned finding community here. I'm guessing it's the King Pizza world. Yes. Uh, who's been so great to us and has sent us so many, 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 many wonderful bands. We love them. Yeah, we love them too. How did you find them and what spoke to them that pulled you in and made you feel safe, secure, warm, loved? So this is actually a really funny story. Now, it's even funnier. Because, so I moved here. We moved here together. What year was that? Uh, October 2016. Okay. We moved just for the winter. Like, just for, like, the roughest time of the year. Just in time. And, um... And we, I was going, like, trying to go to a lot of shows by myself, which I've never done before in Israel. But here I didn't know anyone. And Nogi was busy with her boyfriend. So, and with, like, hating winter. <laughs> so I went I went to shows, like, Googled, found Oh My Rockness, went to shows, blah, 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 Alphaville, all those places. Then one day, I saw there was this band called Ghost King. They were playing at Alphaville. I went to see them, and Nogi joined me for, like, the first time. And I loved them, and after the show, I was coming up to the lead singer to, to tell him that I loved the show, and this other guy came up to him first, this bearded guy, who was asking the lead singer about booking a show, booking his band somewhere. And I heard, it was, like, right when, like, a month after we started Power Snap, before... Paul, Paul, Paul is like, we had a, one drummer before him who was Israeli, and then we were like, no, we need a local. <laughs> Jersey boy. A Jersey boy. Joyzy. Anyway, so I, I um, later on spoke to that bearded guy whose name is Greg. I was like, hey, I have a show. Um, yeah, book me. <laughs> I banned, I mean, I was very nervous. <laughs> that was the first time I saw Greg. Um, and I heard about this, um, the Mad Doctors, this band, and they were having their, um, vinyl release a month later. So I went to that, and that was one of the most amazing shows I've been at in New York and ever. It was the first mosh pit I've been in, in the city, and everything was just so, like, loving and beautiful, and all the bands were amazing. And what's so funny about it, not only that we're in the King Pizza family now, is that Nogi plays bass for Ghost King. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah. And then some. And then some. Can we hear another song? Sure. What are you going to play for us? Um, we're going to play our song, Chemistry, from, for, for, from our EP that we released uh, via King Pizza in the summer. The the EP is named The Latency, and you can still get um, cassettes if you are cool and if, have a cassette player. If you so desire. Before you play, uh, the video is very good. Have you seen it? Yes, I've Yay! seen it. Uh, and I, we encourage everyone to check it out. Um, who directed it, and what was the, the idea behind it? And who are all the people that are in it? Because so, there's more than three of you. <laughs> right. Paul oh, wasn't there was cause, <laughs> because of his time. But mm-hmm. by the time that we released the video... Paul was already the drummer, so Great. that was kind of funny. <laughs> Throwing his stick in the air in triumph. Um, directed and shot and edited it. Edited it. Was, uh, are, were, Gal Shaya and Efrat Kariv, two of our d- very dear Israeli friends. 
and um, a couple other or three other of our friends um, were in it as my obstacles to get into the thing that I desire that in the end is my demise. I mean, well said. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's hear the song. Um... EP came out earlier this year. Delatency? Delatency. Delatency. Like delay and latency. Delay, a, a new word. Yes. A new word. Uh, where did Greg, it, our, our our friend from King Pizza, <laughs> was like, before we released it, he was like, just just making sure. You know it's not a real word, right? right. So like, it's not like some like Israeli translation where like, uh, no, no, we're pretty sure it's a word. Or, or it's like, is this an Israeli word that we don't? Is this some Hebrew that we don't know? It's like, no. It's just a made up word. No. Where does it come from? Um, delay and latency. Because, you know, just everything's like always late, you know? Like this EP took like, two years to make like the, those three and a half songs I felt like we moved here a little too late um, uh, we were always late when we like scheduled stuff with Paul um, 
when we recorded the album, there was a lot of latency issues that we needed to to solve. You said three and a half songs? Yeah. What's the half song? Miscellaneous. <laughs> How is the song a half song? Um, well, I encourage you. What? It's like a mashup. It's like, yeah, it's like a medley. Okay. Of like weird demo thingies with some like skit bits. And uh, yeah, I highly. We're on Spotify actually as of like yesterday or something. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) And uh, yeah, please uh, go listen to The Latency and uh, tell us what you think about Miscellaneous. Was it stupid? Maybe. Maybe. Probably not. Probably not. If you could message back to 12-year-old you who was into American Idiot and just had a dream of releasing music in the States, now that you've done it, what would you say to her and how do you feel about her currently? Oh my god, I actually had a talk with her like <laughs> like a few weeks before my 24th birthday. Um, and it was very, it was very emotional. It set was this, very nice. Tell us. Set the stage for us. Um, I got super stoned and like I looked in my eyes I looked in the mirror and the eyes they were looking it was like my image but the eyes they were looking back was me when I'm like 14 like 10 years ago um, and I was like look look where, you, look where I am look where you are and she was like oh my god this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then how does 24-year-old you feel about it now that you've done it? This, disregarding the fact that you moved here too late and everything's late. Currently yeah, I'm, in still, the I'm still not satisfied. Still not satisfied. And why is that? Because I want us to play in front of like 5,000 people, not 15 people. <laughs> <laughs> so come to our shows. Help, help us. Help us <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure we have time for one more song, but you're already on Spotify, but where can people find you, follow you, come to your shows, get yes. all the information? Um, when is this thing going to be on? Tomorrow. Awesome. So come to our show in a few days. In, um, uh, on the 29th at Our Wicked Lady, it's Thursdays for the Cause, which means that all proceeds from the door and 10 percent of proceeds from the bar goes to um each month they pick a different charity this month it's for this um union to help uh, voting rights something so that that is cool that is good you should come there's gonna be special guests maybe and then also we're playing a show on December 9th with our dear dear friends Top Nachos the band with the coolest name in the world great name and um, yeah, we're on Spotify and, and stuff now, and probably Apple Music. Hopefully, I don't know. I'll, I'll check. <laughs> you can buy our album on Bandcamp. You can buy the cassette on Bandcamp too. And if you want a sick, super, super duper soft T-shirt with like double-sided one with stuff on the back and on the front. Whoa! Whoa! Wow! All sizes, either blue or white. Come to one of our shows or like private messages or something like that. Perfect. Well, we want to thank uh, Sherry Bear for coming on and congratulations on your 15 year anniversary. 
Power Snap. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you, Greg. Uh, we will be back next week with an all-new episode of Snacky Tunes. What are you going to take us out with? Pusher. 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 Thanks for listening. See you next week. One, two, three, four. How much do I have to push you? How much do I have to clean up? Or in their mind, people now for to take arms against the careless way of love. Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.